Hey, my name is Frank. I, I wish y'all could, uh, don't do this, but if you could all stand on stage and just watch you as you greet one another, it is the highlight of my week. So thank you for bringing God's love into this place and connecting with people. And my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, welcome. I, I hope you find this to be a safe place to explore what could be a very life-transforming message for you. Um, none of us are here by accident. God has brought us all here uh, for whatever reason, however, he's arranged everything in our lives to get us here for this moment. And so every week we come back and we want to get more and more connected with God because as we do that, we become more transformed. Now, one of the things that has always built my faith is the understanding that everything that's happening or has happened has been ordained by God. No matter how much man didn't understand it, no matter how much things went kind of haywire from our perspective, God was working out his plan. He was never not in control. And along the way, he, he, he just gave us reminders to say, look, I, I'm still in control here. And one of the things that he did was he said uh, early on, I, I'm gonna set apart seven days, seven appointed times, seven holy days. And each of these days, you're gonna stop what you're doing and I'm gonna tell you how to worship, how to follow, what I want you to do on those days because these are my days, not your days. And so we've been, start, we started a series about the seven feasts of the Lord. And so let's put that slide up. Uh, and basically, there are four in the spring and three in the fall. They follow the harvest season. Some of these we're gonna learn required everybody travel to Jerusalem. Some did not. Okay, and we'll go into that later. But there's seven feasts. Uh, the spring feasts, let's go to the next slide, um, foreshadow events in the Messiah's life. Okay, and it's, it's amazing. We're, you're going to see Jesus is written all over this. I mean, it's like every feast. And today, it's going to be even more amazing, but it's just, he's all over it. So Passover foreshadowed Jesus' death and his crucifixion. The unleavened bread foreshadowed his sanctification and his burial. We'll talk about that. First fruits represents him rising from the dead and becoming the first fruit. And then the week's celebration is the new covenant and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Those are the spring feasts. They've all been completed prophetically. In other words, what the prophets said, what God said in the scriptures has come true in Jesus's life. If you wanna look at it this way, we are living in the late summer. Okay, the fall feasts are coming theologically. So let's look at the fall feasts. Feast of Trumpets, uh, that'll be Jesus' second coming. Trumpet will sound, Jesus will return. Then there's the Day of Atonement, the day when Israel realizes, when the Jewish people realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they repent and turn to him. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, which, which basically foreshadows that we're all gonna live together in the Messianic kingdom. And we'll go through each of these each week. Right now, we're in part two of Passover. All of the feasts start with Passover, and it's important that we understand Passover, okay? Because we saw last week, it ties in a very strong way to the Lamb of God and what God did during the first Passover as well as the one that Jesus experienced. Today, we're gonna to continue to study Passover. I'm not gonna go back through what we did last week. I would just encourage you to go online. You can find it um, on our website, you can find it in the Frank Bible Truth podcast, uh, but I want you to get caught up because Passover is one of the most moving, powerful statements 
by God about who the Messiah will be. I want to go back to the last week of Jesus's life on earth, at least the first time. Luke 22, 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he says, show you a lo- and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it here. And then he went and he found it just as they had told him and they prepared the Passover. Jesus is coming to the temple. He is the Lamb of God. It is Passover. There is a Passover meal, a Passover celebration that every Jewish person must participate in. And he's telling the disciples, we got to get ready. Now, this turns out to be the night before he is slaughtered. Now, here's the thing that's really important to understand. The Passover celebration was in Scripture. We looked at the Scriptures last week. And pretty much what they said was, you're going to eat standing. You're going to basically uh, lamb, some bitter herbs. and, And they just walked through some generic things. The Jewish people over... 3,500 years have been celebrating Passover, and there was a typical Seder, an an, uh, organized event, a way of celebrating Passover. And it was well established, we know, uh, at least uh, 200 years before Jesus arrived on the planet. Okay, so the Jewish people have been doing a Passover Seder the exact same way from 200 years before Jesus arrived until today. It's the same Seder. It's written out. They follow it word for word. It's, it's, um, it's a uh, order of service. So every family, no matter who's leading, who celebrates Passover as a Jewish father or Jewish leader is going to follow the same pattern. Why is that important? Well, it's important because when we understand the pattern of what the Seder is, and then we see what Jesus did during that last Seder, it blows your mind. We're going to talk about that today. The ritual Passover service is called a Seder. It is a prescribed traditional order. It's not scripture. God didn't ordain it that way. It's just the way that they've always done it as Jewish people. Okay? Including scripture reading, prayers, symbolic foods, and song. And that order has remained unchanged for essentially 2,300 years. Now, some songs and traditions were added up into the Middle Ages, but the basic order has stayed the same. And importantly, that basic order was in place when Jesus celebrated Passover dinner that night with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. So we're going to talk today about the actual Seder service and what Jewish people do to celebrate Passover every year at this dinner. And we're going to see some incredible things. Now, the first thing that they must do is they have to carefully make sure that all leaven has been removed from their home. Leaven is yeast. Leaven represents sin. Leaven is uh, something that they uh, attribute to uh, sinful things. And so their, their assignment before this Passover feast starts is to go through the house and make sure there's no leaven anywhere. Okay? Now, after the Passover, the immediate next week is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Okay, they run together. Most Jewish people consider it all one thing. Passover and unleavened bread run together. So before they start Passover, and because it's a holy day, and the next series is another set of holy days, they have to clean now. Does that make sense? So they're cleaning their house. They're making sure they get everything. And so when people today speak of the Passover celebration, they're usually talking about Passover and the seven days of unleavened bread that follows. We'll talk about that next week. So the final thing they have to do before Passover is to clear the house of any leaven. Symbolic of sin. It gets into the dough and it ferments and it rises and it puffs up, a lot like our sins do in our lives. So Orthodox Jewish women do a spring cleaning that starts a week in advance. Floor scrubbed, pockets checked, clothes laundered, cooking utensils scalded. Every day, cookwares were replaced with the finest Passover china, silver, and crystal. Now, here's the thing that I love about God. God has a sense of humor. The woman's job is to clean the house, but only men are allowed to determine if the house is truly clean. Nice, right? The mother cleans the house, but only the father can say that it's been done properly. God has a sense of humor, I'm telling you. So the wife always leaves a little bit of leaven somewhere in the house. The man searches the house carrying a feather, a wooden spoon, and a linen napkin. Okay? He finds the leaven. He uses the feather to scoop the leaven into the spoon. And then he wraps him in a linen. He goes to the synagogue and burns it and recites a prayer. Then he declares his home free of all leaven. Paul mentions this custom to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is a symbol of sin. We, we become puffed up and we rise up before God. Thus, unleavened bread, which they call matzah, is a symbol of righteousness before God. Okay, it can't puff up. It can't do that. So unleavened bread or matzah is a symbol of being righteous with God. Now, the seating at the Passover Seder has been the same as long as it's been done. Uh, it basically moves from person to person, and then the last person is always the youngest, and they sit to the right of the leader of the Seder, which is usually the Jewish father. Okay? It's celebrated in the home. The leader sits at the head of the dinner table. The youngest sits on his right side. Left of the leader is the guest of honor or an empty seat placed for Elijah the prophet. Okay, so picture that, table going around, youngest to the right, empty seat to the left, waiting for Elijah to show up, okay? Why? Well, because the prophet Malachi said, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, so should Elijah show up at the Passover, they wanna have a seat for him, a seat of high honor, okay? Part of the Passover Seder is that at some point in the Seder, they send a child to the front door to see if Elijah's there. I think that's funny. Anyway, the child comes back and says, not this year. Okay. What they don't know is what Jesus said. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, John the Baptist. He who has ears, let him hear. So they're saving a seat for Elijah. Elijah's already come. Now in ancient Egypt, only free people, those who were not slaves, could recline at a table while eating. Okay? Slaves had to stand while eating. The first Passover, they stood ready to go. If you remember last week, we talked about get your cell phone charged, get your keys ready, get, get ready. And so they stood ready to go, the sign of slaves. That's how slaves eat. Now they use pillows and sit on the floor to remind them that they've been set free. They're no longer slaves. They can now recline at the table. They are free men. The mother or women usually begin the service by the lighting of the festival candles. Okay, so picture the family around the table, empty seat for Elijah, youngest child or youngest person to the right. Now the service begins, the yeast is out of the house and it's time to light the candles. She covers her eyes and recites a Hebrew blessing over the candles. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by his word and in whose name we light the festival lights. Okay. In the same way, it was through a woman that the light of the world came to the earth. Isaiah 7:14. Then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, a light to the Gentiles and glory to my people Israel. Isaiah 63. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your writing, of your rising. Now, Christ followers at this point recite a messianic blessing. Okay, so we have two groups of people celebrating Passover. The Orthodox Jews who have not accepted Jesus as Messiah and messianic Jews who have grown up Jewish, celebrate Jewish traditions, but believe Jesus is the Messiah. And at this point in the Seder, those who are messianic say this, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us through Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world, with the candles lit, Passover begins. Okay? So the difference is those who are messianic give credit of the light to Jesus. Now, once the leaven has been removed, the candles have been lit, it's time for the father of the home to begin the Seder service. He is the head of the house. He is the priest of the home. He spiritually has responsibility over every person in the home. As such, he puts on a white linen robe called a kittle, a robe. It symbolizes purity and priesthood. It's the same garment worn by the priests. So on Passover, once a year, the father of the home dresses as a priest, okay? Because he is spiritually over his family. Many wear this garment as grooms when they get married. Okay, so a Jewish man would wear this each year, once at Passover, once when he gets married. And some are buried in it, okay? So these are very uh, traditional, powerful symbols of the Jewish faith. So Jesus, as head of the Last Supper, likely wore this garment as well on the night before his crucifixion. He's dressed as a priest, He's dressed as a groom, and he's in burial clothes. The kittel may be what's referenced 
in the linen cloth that Jesus was buried in. The head of the Seder also puts on a head covering that symbolizes a crown. As the leader of the family, he stands up and he pours the first cup of wine. Each person has one cup, but it's filled four times. Okay? There are four separate cups of wine, each one representing something different. Each one specifically representing a promise from God that's in Exodus 6. It's, they are promises of deliverance. Now, wine, if you remember, is the fruit of Israel. Israel is considered the vine, the, the vineyard, the, the wine, the fruit is, is the Jewish people. And so every time they drink wine, it's a celebration and a symbol of joy for them. Exodus 6, 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I'll be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. This first cup is called, I will bring you out. It's a reminder to the Jewish people of God's faithfulness. It's a cup of redemption and thanks. You have saved me. First cup. He asks everyone to stand, and then he lifts his cup and recites the Kadesh, a prayer of sanctification. Jesus would have read this blessing that night. Remember, the service hasn't changed for thousands of years. Jesus would have read this, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe and creator of the fruit of the vine. At this point in the Last Supper, Jesus said this, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, the first cup. And when he given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is telling them, look, we've celebrated the Passover before. But this one, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one I've been waiting for. The word that I've earnestly desired is almost like I've lusted for this moment. I've been thinking about this moment from the day I showed up. I've earnestly been looking forward to it. This Passover, because I need to celebrate the Last Supper before I suffer. Remember I told you that Jesus is always in the moment. He's not worried about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Right now, I'm with my people this is the last Passover before the final sacrifice. He took the cup, he gives thanks, the first cup. Jesus began to speak of a new covenant, a new Passover that'll be celebrated in the future when everything has been completed. Now the next thing that happens after the first cup is they bring a bowl to wash your hands. One of the members brings a pitcher of water and a bowl and a towel to the leader. It is symbolic that the leader would do an act of purification for the whole family, okay? So the leader makes a big thing before he prepares food. He washes his hands in acknowledgement of his position of influence. In other words, the leader is the one that gets to wash his hands in front of everybody in the fancy bowl, okay? It's a symbol of his position of power and influence and the leader of this home. 
It is most important that he cleans his hands to purify uh, the whole family from sin. It's an honor reserved for the person of most influence. Others will wash their hands later. Yet at this moment, a moment when Jesus was ready to wash his hands in front of everybody to proclaim his dominance, to proclaim his spiritual authority, he does something unheard of. Rather than take this moment to reflect on his own authority, he stoops to teach the disciples a lesson about servant leadership. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus took off the Kadesh, the symbol of priesthood and authority, and he stooped down as a leader and washed the disciples' feet. Only slaves do that. And in fact, slaves often aren't even allowed to do that because it's so low. You could ask a slave to do almost anything, but washing someone's feet was usually optional. It was seen too disgusting. So Jesus, instead of the moment of authority where he washes his hands and declares himself pure, stoops to wash the feet of his disciples. This is culturally unheard of. Jesus, at the moment that is to symbolize authority and position and purification, steps down to serve. And in comes Peter, my favorite. I love Peter, but this is Peter's worst day of his life. On this day, everything Peter says is like whack-a-mole. He just pops up and says it and gets smacked down. It's going to lead to the worst night of his life. Anyway, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? What he's really saying is, look, you're the one leading here. What are you doing? You're stooping. You're embarrassing us. You're acting like a slave. You should be standing above us, pure and holy, and you're on your knees. No. You're the one in authority here. This is not your role. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Wash it, whatever you got to do. Now, after the washing of hands, or in Jesus' case, the feet, the next part of the Seder is basically a, uh, it's a green vegetable uh, process. And let me walk you through that. After the hands are washed, a green vegetable is dipped in salt water and eaten. And the green vegetable is a reminder that Passover occurs in spring. And it is a harvest. It represents life. The green vegetable, whatever, it represents life. But it's put in salt water which is a reminder to the Jewish people of the tears of pain and suffering that they had in slavery. For those who trust in Jesus, it's a reminder of the pain and suffering that Jesus endured for us. Because of God's grace and mercy, we find life among tears and suffering. We too have been freed from slavery. Now, I want to tell you a story um, that I think about every time I think of the, um, the green vegetable dipped in salt water. Because 
It's amazing to me that the Jewish people celebrate Passover, and we're going to see throughout the rest of this feast, everything is about Jesus. I mean, it is just dripping with Jesus. Every tradition they do, everything they do, they don't even know why they do it, but it's all about Jesus. It's incredible. When I was in Israel, uh, there's a place there that's very moving and powerful. I was there with my 10-year-old son at the time, um, and it's basically uh, Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was the high priest. Jesus was taken there as soon as he was pulled out of the garden, okay? So he's taken out of the garden, he's chained, he's dragged up these stairs to go to Caiaphas's house. Let's go to the next slide. Outside Caiaphas' house is a courtyard with a fire where Peter denies Jesus three times. Okay, if you go there now, there's actually a statue of the rooster crowing with Peter and the Roman guard and the woman. So we're at Caiaphas' house. Jesus has been, crucif- or has been arrested. He's been dragged there to the high priest because the high priest is the one that needs to decide what's going to happen. Let's go to the next slide. Now, in Caiaphas' house, strangely, there is a prison underneath it, a dungeon. Okay, when you walk in, you look down about three stories and there's a dungeon This dungeon is most likely where Jesus was the night after he was arrested. Let's go to the next slide. From deep in the dungeon, next slide, you can see where prisoners were kept. Now the two holes above the door allow them to put leather stripes on their arms Okay, and hold them so they can whip them, beat them, and do whatever else they want to do. Next slide. Now this slide, again, the holes are up above. It's a dungeon. If you look closely over, right past that sort of pole, to the right, there's a hole that's about this big. See that? It's about that deep, okay? There's another one on the other side that's the same. What they did is they put salt water in those so that after they whipped people, they could douse them with salt water to torture them. Okay? Not a nice place. Let's go to the next slide. This is a statue of Jesus that is there. And I want you to focus on that as I read to you the psalm that Jesus likely referenced. Psalm 88, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim though sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread my hands out to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. But I, Lord, cry out to you in mourning. My prayer comes before you. 
Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long and they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, Peter. My companions have become darkness. They all fled. That green vegetable, when I think of salt water and life, I think of Jesus in that salt water tank. It's to remind us of the tears and the pain that Jesus went through to be the Passover lamb. After that, the next thing that happens is the unleavened bread or matzah. Now matzah, let's put up a picture of matzah. Oops, wrong one. Okay, I'm sorry. Never mind. Yeah, there it is. Matzah bread we will uh, talk about quite a bit. Um, but first, what you need to know is that there are three matzah breads, three crackers, if you want to call them, and they're all kept inside what's called a tosh or a bag, okay? Three matzahs in a bag, each holding a separate portion. The rabbis teach and have taught from the very beginning that the three matzahs represent unity. Three pieces of bread, one bag, three in one, unity. Now, if you ask the rabbis, what is the unity about, they disagree. Some say it's the unity of the patriarchs. Each piece of bread, one representing Abram, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Others say it's the unity of worship in Israel. Each piece of bread represents the priests, the Levites, and the people. But Christ followers know what three in one means. Matzah represents the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all in unity. The bread itself is unique. There are holes that are poked into it to make sure that it can't possibly rise, that there's no leaven at all. It is baked on a rack which produces brown stripes. It is essentially sinless, unleavened, stripped, pierced. Jesus was sinless, unleavened, stretched, pierced, striped. Just like Isaiah predicted 700 years before. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced. And by his stripes, we are healed. The bread represents Jesus, the bread of life, Messiah. Now, during the Seder, the Jewish people do something very weird to them. They take the middle matzah. They reach in and they take it out. They wrap it in linen and they go hide it. If you ask the rabbis why they do this, their answer is tradition. It's tradition. They break the middle matzah, the second piece. They wrap it in a linen bag, just the middle matzah that they call the afikoman, a word meaning he who is to come. They take that middle piece wrapped in linen, they take it outside the room and they hide it for a while and they're gonna bring it back. Buried, if you will. It is such an important part of the Passover Seder that the Seder cannot continue 
until the matzah is found and returned. That comes a bit later in the Seder. At that point, with the middle matzah, father, son, removed, they move to a part of the service called four questions. Okay. These questions are asked by the youngest person sitting to the right of the leader. They're designed to give the father a chance to teach the story of Passover to his family. Oral tradition and passing on those stories to the next generation is a key part of Passover. Questions. Why is this night different than all other nights? On all other nights we eat leavened and unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? Father would teach. On other nights we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night only bitter herbs. Why? Third question. On all other nights, we do not dip even once, but on this night, we dip twice. Fourth question. On all other nights, we eat sitting or reclining, but this night, we only sit. Often, the youngest would recline upon the leader. It's a chance for the daughter or son to get in their father's lap. John was the youngest disciple, and he would have been seated to Jesus' right. He would have asked the questions that night. John 13, 23, one of the disciples who Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. He would have had the honor of asking the four questions to the Messiah. Think about that. After that, it's time for the second cup. This is a cup of deliverance, representing in Exodus 6, where God says, I will deliver you. Each cup is a promise. I will deliver you. During this time, each, after, each plague is read. Remember we talked about the nine plagues and the tenth one being Passover. Each, it's read. Now here's what's interesting. After each one is read, they take a little bit of the wine and they pour it out onto a, a, a plate that has a pure white linen. Red wine, okay? It's to remind them not to have joy even at the suffering of other people. In other words, your rescue, your salvation came with a price. It costs something. So they read out every plague, and then after each one, they pour a little bit of wine onto a beautiful white napkin or lace napkin so that they can remember that every plague lessens their joy. They were set free, but it cost a lot. Wine is the symbol of joy. So as they pour out a little bit of wine each time, they're depleting their joy. Does that make sense? Now imagine Jesus at this point, pouring out the red wine like drops of blood onto a perfect white napkin, knowing that his blood would be shed and would be poured out tomorrow. Blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, hail, locusts, and finally the firstborn. Ten times. The next part of the service is what's called the dipping of the matzah. Okay? The unleavened bread is broken. A blessing is spoke over it. And the bread is dipped in horseradish, a bitter herb. And it is bitter and it causes one to cry. Okay? 
the matzah is broken, causes one to cry. At this point in the Last Supper, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, the horseradish, the bitterness, the tears, will betray me. Son of man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Judas would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So at the very moment when they're dipping the matzah into the bitterness, he declares that Judas has betrayed him. And he tells him, What you must do, go, do it quickly. Then it's time for dinner. A huge feast towards the end of the meal. The children at this point are sent to look throughout the whole house for the afikoman. Remember, we've got the middle matzah in linen hidden somewhere to be found. Okay? The kids love running through the house trying to find him. The middle matzah that was taken away, the child who finds it returns with great excitement to the table for two reasons. The Passover can begin and they can eat. Second reason, they get a reward. A ransom is paid for the middle matzah who returns. Hmm. The afikoman, he takes it. It's been returned. It's the middle matzah. It's the son. He breaks it and he gives a piece to each person to eat of the afikoman, the bread representing the son. Everyone receives a piece of the middle matzah. Does that remind you of anything? He takes it, he breaks it, he gives a piece to everyone. The matzah, if it represented the unity of the patriarchs, the middle portion broken, wrapped, and brought back, really, that'd be Isaac. If it represented the unity of God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we know why. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, broken, wrapped in linen, buried, and brought back for a ransom. He conquers sin and death. And on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus took the second matzah, bread that's pierced and striped, bread that is perfect, unleavened, no sin. And he says, this bread, this second matzah, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say that over just any bread. He said it over the middle matzah, the one that everyone shares. And he says, from now on, remember, this is broken for me. I'm literally giving you my body. This bread represents me. It was hidden. It went away. It came back. A ransom was paid. And now it's being broken by the spiritual leader, God, and now me, so that you too can celebrate in this true Passover. But it doesn't end there. It's time for the third cup. From Exodus 6, I will redeem you. The third cup, the one after dinner, is called the cup of redemption. Looking back at how God redeemed them from Egypt, took them as slaves, and now made them his children, his people. 
looking forward to the final redemption that will come when the Messiah returns. It's this cup that Jesus lifted next. And likewise, the cup after they have eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took the cup of redemption. After the afikoman was his body, this cup of redemption is his blood. And he says, this is a new covenant. It's a new covenant in my blood, he says. And when the disciples heard that, they were immediately reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. He's the only word, only prophet that ever used the term new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, you're celebrating a Passover moment that is actually a rejection of me. That covenant is no longer valid. We need a new covenant. The new covenant is in this cup of redemption, the blood of Jesus. The prior covenant was the Mosaic covenant written on tablets by God's hand. Jeremiah continues, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Cup of redemption. New covenant written on their hearts, not with hands, with blood. The blood of Jesus. Sins remembered no more. Animal sacrifices no longer necessary. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed once and only once for all. Now picture Jesus standing in the upper room. He's telling them, look, what you've been waiting for for 3,500 years is happening now in this moment. We are now at the point of the new covenant. I'm declaring it tonight. Thousands of Passover celebrations all pointing to this one. Year after year, they drank the third cup of redemption and hoped for a moment when there would be a new chance, when the Messiah would come. And Jesus comes to this Passover and says, it's now. The Last Supper that God wove into the Passover, it's the greatest redemption story of all times. And we're holding the redemption cup. Jesus, the Passover lamb. This is my body, this is my blood. The cup of redemption is a new covenant. It should lead everyone to praise him, bringing us to the fourth cup, the final cup. This is the cup of praise and acceptance, okay? But on that night, Jesus wouldn't drink from it. It wasn't time to praise yet because the Jewish people had not returned to him. It's not time to praise and celebrate acceptance because they were still rejecting him. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. With the rejection of him by the Jews, he knew his acceptance was not complete. There's a whole world against him. He chose not to celebrate this cup until the Jewish nation returns to him, which we will see will be prophetically filled at the sixth feast. 
Then his joy will be complete. And we'll all drink of that cup together. But the praises continue as the Seder comes to an end. There's a closing hymn. Every Seder, including in Jesus' time, ended with the same hymn, the last half of the Hallel. Psalm 115 through 118. As we head towards communion today, I want you to think about the words Jesus sang that night as the leader of the Passover. As the final supper ended, the Passover feast came to a close, and his appointed time to the cross was only hours away. Do you know how the Hallel starts? Our God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Think about Jesus singing those words after he left the Garden of Gethsemane and know he's headed to the cross and is about to be in that dungeon we looked at. Our God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Nothing is out of his control, even this. His heart moves to thanks next. It's incredible when you think about it. He sings, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. He's reminded along this song with the next truth, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He sings the words that just a few days before were welcoming him to Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on this day, this dark day, imagine Jesus singing, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is when Peter and Jesus have their interaction. And when they had sung a hymn, to those who know the Passover Seder, there's only one hymn. To those who have sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Notice that this is when they sung a hymn, closing the Passover Seder, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Peter answered him, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Most people miss that last part of the verse, and Peter gets all the blasts for denying. They all said the same thing. He was just the loudest, that's all. So we're going to do what they did. We're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to sing a song of praise, just as Jesus did with his disciples at the appointed time of Passover. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it, the afikomen, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. After supper makes it the third cup, the redemption cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna celebrate communion. Let's pray. God, there's nothing in your word that fails to point to Jesus. There's nothing in the world that doesn't point to Jesus. 
So God, we understand now much more about the Passover Seder. We understand more about that night. We understand what Jesus must have gone through leading a Seder the night before he's to be crucified. God, it's incredible when we think about the detail of your word, the symbolism of Jesus. So as we move our hearts towards communion, would you just meet us there? Would you remind us of the cup of redemption and the promise of the new covenant? You tell us in your word that every time we take communion, we celebrate and we declare you until your return. So God, we share in the afikoman today, broken for us. We share in the cup of redemption, which is our new covenant. Move our hearts as we move towards you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.